0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
1: Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today I'm excited to have Claire Lerner back. She just wrote her first book, Why Is My Child in Charge? A Roadmap to End Power Struggles, Increase Cooperation, and Find Joy in Parenting Young Children. We're going to go through her roadmap by walking through Eight mindset shifts that can really help parents cope with more challenging behaviors and use really specific examples that hopefully you can translate for any situation that you're in. If you enjoy this episode, please write a lovely review. Tell me what you think. Subscribe if you haven't, and give us a rating. And um, as always, please DM me your questions on Instagram at, at Raising Good Humans podcast. And you can also email me and hopefully I will get to your questions either on a bonus episode through Instagram videos or other exciting ways to reach you. So you frame this book by picking out specific parenting mindsets that can either be a trap or you can shift to support your relationship and your child's behavior and all the things that we're looking for. And I'm I'm going to let you correct me on the child's behavior comment, because that's one of the points of all of this. <laughs> so people can be at the edge of their seat on that one. <laughs> can we go through? But I'm so happy you're here to explain everything. And I think we should just dive into the mindsets. Okay. I love that. Let's cut to the chase. And I think just one framing thing
0: I would say is that I never set out to write a parenting book. There are so many excellent parenting books out there. Mm -hmm. The reason I chose to do this is because I had these aha moments, I would say, when Families came to see me with like the bread and butter, right? Power struggles, not cooperating in the morning, coming in and out of the room a million times at bedtime, you know, having tantrums about, you know, turning tablets off. As we started to unpack these complex scenarios with their kids, every single one of these parents knows like yelling, bribing, rewarding, threatening, trying to use logic with kids who are not functioning from a logical place are not really effective strategies. But in the heat of the moment, that's their autopilot. And it was sending them down a path that made it impossible to be the calm, loving limit setter that they know their kids need, right? Right. And Mm-hmm. So as I started to do the detective work with these families, I identified these eight very specific, what I call a faulty mindsets. that it's the starting point. It's like the lens through which parents are interpreting the situation in front of them in like automatically that sends them down a path that makes it impossible to avoid the power struggle and ends up just amplifying the dysregulation and makes it less likely that there's gonna be a loving, productive solution. And so that's why I wrote the book because I felt like this was a missing piece of the puzzle and that once parents became aware of the mindset, that they were better able
1: to be the parent they wanted to be. Wonderful. And it's like a little bit of the, and then what, as well. You know, because- we sort of, I mean, especially this is a self-selecting group of people who listen to Raising Good Humans. So there's a lot of information that doesn't necessarily easily translate into action. And so, or you try it and then you're like, that didn't work. And then what? Exactly. (laughs) So So that is such an important point and a foundation of the book, which is that
0: there is never a one-size-fits-all approach. And I, I can sort of walk us through, as we go through the mindsets, I can walk you through kind of a typical scenario and how it unfolds. But once the parent becomes aware of their trigger and the mindset, then they are able to see their child's behavior much more objectively and really understand what their child is trying to tell them and what they need versus what they may want, right? In that moment. And that then leads to the, what do you do? So the, what do you do is never like a five-step approach to stopping a tantrum or to getting a child to sleep because part of the detective work we're doing is to understand what really is the root cause. So for example, let's take potty learning. This has become a major focus of my practice because there are so many kids who get stuck in this process and it could be for very different reasons, right? So some of them are just fierce kids who are desperate for control. And as soon as they get wind that someone else's agenda is that they need to be a poop on the potty, that just becomes fodder for defiance and you're not the boss of me. And that could be one reason. But I also have a lot of kids who are not moving forward in the process because there's an underlying issue at work, which is that they don't feel like big kids. Like they're still in a crib. They're still drinking from like a sippy cup with like a nipple. Their parents are doing a lot of things for them that they could do for themselves. So they don't even feel like a child who has the capacity to take care of his own body. And so once we work on that, then the potty learning comes. But what happens is in order to get to that understanding, parents have to change their mindset from like, my child's doing this on purpose. He's purposefully refusing to potty train because he just wants to make my life miserable as opposed to this is not like purposeful misbehavior. The demand that we have for our child is not equal to his ability. And you've talked a lot about that in your podcast, right? That when there's a challenge, often it's because there's a delta between the expectation for the child And the child's actual abilities, right? So at the most foundational level, the first mindset is seeing whatever challenging behavior your child's presenting with is not purposeful. It may look intentional, right? Like hitting you, throwing a toy, you know, um, hurling vitriol at you when you don't give him what he wants. Yes, those are, look intentional, but no child sets out to be intentionally harmful. If they have not learned how to manage their emotions in order to be able to be more effective. So if you see your child as purposefully misbehaving, you're automatically going down a path that's much more harsh and punitive that um, gets kids' haunches up and makes it much less likely you're gonna get to the underlying issue that the child's really struggling with.
1: And actually that mindset is fairly hand in hand with the next one because so many people say, my child is manipulative. That one's a really hard sell and it's so important. And I think it starts with the first mindset but then it goes into this second mindset about faulty mindset, you called it. Yeah, so I had this aha one day when a
0: couple came in and I still remember it clear as day. It was many years ago. They had a really feisty three-year-old and they walked in and the dad literally said, we have a fascist dictator living in our home. Let me tell you about her, Okay. So he starts to explain that, you know, they have dinner. She sort of picks, you know, may not eat a whole lot, but she's not starving and she's thriving. And then they do their bedtime routine and then they say goodnight and they turn the lights out. And inevitably within five minutes, she's screaming that she's starving. So they're triggered right? Like what good loving parents is going to be like, sorry, not giving you food. So they feel triggered and stuck and they go in and they're like, oh, you should have eaten more at dinner, but here, right? And then they give her yeah. the cheese stick or the cheese crackers or whatever. And they feel completely manipulated by her. They know it's an obfuscation. They know that it's a way to extend bedtime and they're angry and they're frustrated and annoyed. And the, the dynamic persist because at the end of the day, the child is putting two and two together and it's getting her what she wants, which is more time with mommy and dad, right? So I had this aha moment as I'm listening to this dad tell the story and I'm thinking, actually, she's just really strategic. She's figured out the system. What three-year-old wants to say good night and end this loving you know, scenario with their parents. So she has cleverly figured out how to get her need met or her want met, let me say. Her want, right. Want because she doesn't need that, right? Like in a healthy family with lots of loving connection during the day, having a limit at bedtime is actually one of the most loving things you can do. And of course, like this is not a, a webinar about sleep, but Obviously, that's a biggie for parents where it's very hard to set limits. And so no three-year-old is going to say, you know, it's really time for me to calm my mind and body and shut my system down so I can grow. And so, you know, I'm all good. No, she's figured out that this is a way to keep them connected. The key is for the parents. It's the parents' job to not let a strategy that they don't think is healthy and that they don't want to persist work. So once I was able to help those parents see that she was just doing what's in the DNA of a three-year-old, which is at a cellular level to pursue their agenda. That is not misbehaving. That is not being a bad kid. In fact, it's being a really clever kid. It's Mm -hmm. just that we need to change the system so that that strategy doesn't work. And she adapts to a system that is healthier for her. So once the parents, like in one minute, they were like, oh, we don't have this like sociopathic, bad, manipulative child. And therefore, by the way, we're not bad parents. In fact, we've raised a kid who is really clever. She puts two and two together. It's our job to set limits that are healthier for our family system. So with that mind shift, without being angry and frustrated with her anymore, then they were able to do this. Sarah, I know it's really hard to say goodnight. It's never enough time, but our plan is something we're sticking to because that's a mommy daddy job. It's our job to make sure that you get the rest you need. So here's what we're going to do we're going to have dinner time and you're going to have all these great choices. And when dinner is over, we're going to do bath and all that. And they were the ones who came up with something that all my families use now, which is called last chance food. They felt like if they gave her another chance, by the way, this is literally like 20 minutes after dinner, but they found, and this is an important point because it's all really about the parents managing our own reactions and triggers. They felt that if they gave her another chance to eat before lights out, they would be able to stick to the limit. And that's what they did. So they did last chance food. So at book time, they offered her a healthy snack, which was not very big because we didn't want it to kind of replace dinner. And of course, what happens the first night? So typical. She's like, oh, I'm not really hungry. They read the books. They put her down literally 10 minutes after they've offered her the snack she's screaming for food. But at that point, the parents understood what was happening. They were able to manage their own emotions with the mind shift of she's just being strategic. And if this system for her works, she's going to keep using it. And with that mind shift, they were able to not react. And like we find with kids, once the strategy isn't working. And they just called up to her and said, we love you. We can't wait to see you at breakfast. That was like the mantra. We came up to remind her that there is another chance to eat. Of course, there was pushback. Of course, she yelled and screamed and said she was starving and she was never going to fall asleep because she was so starving. But they understood what they were seeing then and they were able to hold the important limit. And the transformation for them was enormous. They could now enjoy think of it before this they were on pins and needles at bedtime they could not enjoy it and by the way for many families in this day and age bedtime is the time that they have the most connection they're running out in the morning there's so little time so it was such a shame and now they could enjoy it because they knew that they were in charge in a loving way and that They could hold the limit and they wouldn't have to be walking on eggshells around this power struggle that was going to ensue. And I would say that that was the most loving thing they did for their daughter and for themselves.
1: And what's wonderful there is also just reminding parents make sure that the limit that you set is one that you can stick with. So, coming up with something that makes sense for you, that's the key. That, even
0: though it's mindset three, I would say when people say to me, what is the absolute most important one? And it's really hard to choose, but I would say it's what you are addressing right now, which is that if your limits are dependent on your child's agreement with them (laughs) and you don't you don't have an ability to actually implement it, that is when things totally devolve and cascade into a protracted power struggle, right? So let's think of the limit of, and I mean, this is going to be a trigger for many parents is this coming in and out of the room, right? After life's out.
1: For sure. This
0: is one of the most stressful moments for every family. And what most families are doing when they come to see me is like I said before, bribing threatening, using lot, oh, you're going to be so tired. Don't you want to be awake for your friends tomorrow? They're like, no, I've got plenty of energy. Or, you know, if you don't stay in your room, there's no Paw Patrol tomorrow morning at breakfast. And he's like, I don't care about Paw Patrol. So you see that when you use those tactics, they're all dependent on your child changing their mind based on that tactic. So You're just waiting for the child to finally say, yeah, I should stay in my room because that's the thing I should do right now. Um, Or yeah, you know what? Like it's enough books. I really should, you know, close my eyes now, like I said before. So instead of focusing on controlling your child, which you, by the way, the most humbling thing nobody ever (laughs) tells you, you have zero control over your child. Mm -hmm. Like your child is a human being. And only he controls what he says and what he does. You can't make him pee or poop on the potty. You can't make him fall asleep. You can't make him stop having a tantrum. You can't make him put his own clothes on. What you control is how you respond in the situation. So I would say that it's for all my families things completely turn around and the relationships thrive when a parent is able to say, sweetie, here's the deal. We're going to do this awesome bedtime routine. We're going to read these books. We're going to sing these songs. I'm going to do cuddle time with you. And then I'm going to say my special mantra and then it's lights out. And you have two great choices. If you want your door open, you stay in your room because that's our rule. We stay in our room so our minds and bodies can calm. You'll figure out how to get yourself to sleep. You're great at that. If you choose to come out, no problem. I'll be a helper, escort you in, and we'll use a door helper that helps you follow the rule to stay in your room. You decide. It's totally up to you, right? So I can't help myself but not point out now. So many parents at that point say to me, I'm not locking my child in their room. Okay. And I've had to really grapple with this because I'm in the weeds with parents. I'm not just saying like, this is a great plan in theory, because almost every kid comes out of their room. So if you do not have a way to create some kind of boundary, you are in the gray zone. The gray zone is where you're pleading, begging, negotiating, bargaining, and your child is completely in charge in a very unhealthy way, not in a positive way. And so what I I realized recently is that Kids are in cribs for two to three years and parents love cribs because cribs provide a healthy boundary. Yeah. Closing a door is not harmful in and of itself. You're not saying that's it. Go to bed. I don't want to see you again. That would be punitive and unhealthy. But in the way I have worked with families is you say, this is our door helper. He's our friend. He helps you stay in your room so your mind and body can go to sleep. I know you don't like it. Not, I don't even expect you to like it. I know you don't like our rule. You want to come out. You want to stay in our bed, but our rule is that everybody stays in their own bed. And so it's totally fine. We're not asking you to agree with it. We're just telling you what your two great choices are. Wonderful. And
1: door helper is hilarious. (laughs) like it's Um, all semantics. (laughs) It is all semantics, but the semantics are important because you sit there in, you know, struggling to sort of say the right thing. And I think having language that's relatable is part of the, the benefit of this book and how you work with families.
0: The thing is the tone matters and the words matter so much because a threat can easily be turned into a choice. Like if you say, that's it, back in your room, door helpers going up. That gets your kids' punches up and causes a lot of reactivity and a power struggle. If you say, here's the deal, sweetie, you have two great choices. You can have the door open, you stay in your room, or you have the door helper. Already you are, the tone you're using Already puts your child in a completely different mindset. So the tone, uh, that's why I I really discourage parents from using threats. And instead, it's not like that's it. I'm gonna have to grab you and put you in the car seat. It's here's the deal. So you've got two great choices. If you want to be in charge, you can hop to the car seat, you can run like Roadrunner, great. If you choose not to do that, no problem. But getting in the car seat is a have to, so I'll be a helper. And I'll help you get in. And then you just pick them up. You ignore all the yelling and screaming because you're just setting a limit. And you put them in and you start singing and talking and you're just showing them. In your your mind, you're saying, I love you so much. I'm not going to do this with you. I'm giving you two great choices and I'm going to be a helper if you're having a hard time right now. But what I'm not going to do is let you be the lightning rod and get everybody angry at you because now you're late to preschool and I'm late to work. That is way more detrimental to kids than setting a clear limit. That's why it's not get in your car seat, get in your car seat. If you don't get in your car seat, now the child's running away with that mischievous grin on their face where then you really want to strangle them. That is very detrimental for kids. So focusing on what you control and how you can ultimately ensure that that important limit is is enforced is is a critical piece of
1: this puzzle. You know, I always um, use car seats as an example when parents struggle with setting a limit because that's the one that every parent, they don't say, okay, fine, today you don't have to be in your car seat when we go on the highway. <laughs> like that, that is never going to happen. Yes. So every parent who thinks they can't set a limit and stick with it can use that example because it just is, we all accept it and we don't, I mean, I guess you could just not go anywhere, (laughs) but in general, that's the one that you, you know, like, okay, I can actually set a limit and my child may be uncomfortable, but I'm still doing it. And ultimately those examples really help parents understand, okay, I can control my own choices And my behavior, I definitely, and I think you're, you know that that is the most humbling thing about becoming a parent. I mean, we know our whole lives that you can't control other people, but then you have a baby and you think, well, but this person, I, I think I might be able to control. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just never um, true, and nor would it be healthy if you could temporarily. So that mindset is. I would agree. I think, I think yeah. if you have to pick one golden rule, it's probably not golden rule, wrong, wrong saying, but one, um, in like well, sort mindset of, thinking yeah. you can control your child's anything, mm-hmm. you can set them up and the behaviors that you expect can be there and you can control whether they get in the car seat because mm-hmm. ultimately you just won't allow for anything else, but how you get there mm-hmm. and the emotions behind it are just, they're not on us. Yeah. And I think, Aliza, I would say that for most of us
0: doing this work, the families who are coming to us by and large, at least I can speak for myself, by far, the large majority are kids who temperamentally are more intense, more reactive by nature, because they have more challenges, because they experience things so deeply, they get overwhelmed very easily, and they Therefore, when they feel out of control on the inside, they tend to become very controlling on the outside. It's a coping mechanism to sort of impose some order on the world. They come up with more fixed ideas about things, and they also, therefore, tend to be more oppositional and defiant. So if you, the more you get involved in trying to change them, the more fiercely they dig in their heels and the more vehement the power struggle, which is so detrimental for everybody. So it's especially important, this mind shift for kids who are really fierce and who have a very low threshold for stress and discomfort. Their haunches are going to be so much more up if you take a threatening tone as opposed to, I pad time's over, sweetie. I know you don't like it. I'm not asking you to like it. That's a mommy-daddy rule. You've got two great choices. You can give it, and you can have your iPad time later then because that's our rule. If you choose not to, no problem. I'll be a helper. It may feel uncomfortable. I may have to you know take it out of your hands, and I don't want to do that either, but the iPad has to go away. Which would you like? And then they run away and you extricate it as calmly as you can, and you say, "I'm going to put it away for now, and they have their fallout, and you say, "I know. It's really disappointing when you're ready, I can't wait to move on and have a helper in the kitchen. Like It's just focusing on what you're going to do to move this system along in a positive way. And that can
1: only happen if you have an end game that you can control. By now, you guys know that I love Gemist. It is so smart for busy moms who don't have time for anything. It takes... No time to figure out the product you want. It's like a 20 second quiz. And then there's a subscription service, which takes into account how often you wash your hair, how long your hair is, how thick your hair is. So that is why I love Gemist. And their algorithm matched me with the best shampoo and conditioner. I matched with Shampoo 5, which is best for smoothing hair and detangling. And it also increases my volume by 42%. 42%, which I haven't seen since I teased my hair in the 80s and before I had children, and so much of my hair came out. So I also matched with conditioner 12, which strengthens hair by 72%, reduces hair breakage by 42%, and increases shine by 40%. Plus, all of Gemist products are used color safe. It's really good stuff. And did I mention Gemist is women-owned? It has a subscription service where you save 20% off on every order with smart subscribe, and you get free shipping. There are free returns. The ingredients are free of sulfates. They're free of parabens. They're free of dye. They are never tested on animals, and it is manufactured in the US, and I love how it smells. So. If you are ready to have the best hair ever, try Gemist. And right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner smart subscription. Smart subscribers already save 20% on each order. So this is an amazing deal on top of that. And with free two-day shipping, you can have it by Monday. Just visit Gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter RGH at checkout for 20% off your subscription and free two-day shipping. That's gemist.com, G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com, and enter the code RGH at checkout to get the best hair ever. Today's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. I'm thrilled that KiwiCo is one of my sponsors. We all know this school year is going to be filled with transitions and uncertainty. Some kids are going back in person. Some are going to be logging into a classroom from home. As parents, this is a very time-consuming fall, and sometimes you might need a little bit of a break, but know that your kids have a really cool something-something to do. So hands-on science and art projects delivered to your door feels really good. This company, KiwiCo, can deliver a science fair, an art class, any kind of project right to your door, and... It's really fun for adults if you do want to engage with your kids and do a project with them. I love free play, but there are times when you don't want to use screens and you just need a little bit of help. So get it with KiwiCo. Your child can get super cool hands-on science and art and geography projects delivered to the door every month. They will be excited to see its arrival. They'll be totally focused on their project instead of you know just tugging at you and you'll be surprised at how high quality the materials are these are real engineering science and art projects for children we have made kaleidoscopes we've made robots we've made puzzles cultivate your child's natural creativity and curiosity with new hands-on projects every month. They'll explore new worlds and new materials. They'll rediscover familiar ones and they learn how to follow directions. And they can also just put the directions aside and use the materials to create something else from sailing the solar system to engineering and drip irrigation system and more. Do your part to encourage your children to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There is something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code HUMANS at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com with the code HUMANS. Okay. We've all seen too many screens. We've all heard about blue light being really not good for you. And this product is a great solution. So blue light coming from our screens is just bad for our health and it's bad for our sleep. And we're all so worried about our kids getting good night's sleep and what's happening to them with all of the screen time. So we're looking for things that will protect their health and their eyes. And I found this product called iJust Blue Light Blocking Screen Protector that actually blocks harmful blue light at the source and helps kids get better sleep. Kids of all ages from kindergarten through college are getting a jolt of blue light from their devices, from their parents' devices. It's all over the place. I recommend getting rid of all devices well before bedtime because of that blue light Children's eyes are particularly at risk from blue light overexposure because they're not fully developed, and so it causes increased sensitivity to the effects of blue light. I just blue light blocking technology is embedded directly into the screen and is super easy to apply. You won't even know it's there, but you will know that it's working. I'm happy that I don't have the hassle of the blue light glasses, and I found that a simple, effective way to protect my eyes and my family's eyes is with iJust blue light blocking technology. Now is the time to help your kids have healthier tech and block harmful blue light. iJust is a great solution. Visit iJust.com for more information. That's E-Y-E-J-U-S-T.com. And iJust is offering a special code for my listeners. So use the code humans and you'll get 20% off your first order. That goes into the next mindset, which is again, so important, the idea that it is harmful for children to have any challenging feelings, even if intellectually parents know this is not the case, and maybe some don't. But even if you do intellectually in the heat of the moment, it's very painful to see your child experiencing challenging emotions, especially if you have a highly sensitive kid or just a very reactive kid. So let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So that's again as as I,
0: you know, we do this sort of unpacking of these complex interactions. And I'm trying to figure out what's the stumbling block for the parent, because almost always the answer is to lovingly set a limit that provides the scaffolding the child needs to cope, right? That's a lot of what we're doing early on. And as I tune into parents, I start to see that they have this like bifurcated innate idea that it's limits or loving, like they're either being loving and connecting and talking and playing, or they're being mean and setting a limit. And so what happens is the meanness comes from when the child has a knockdown drag out, you know, tantrum or says, I'll never be able to do this again, you know, or they say things like, I'm not going to school. I hate school. Like they start to express negative emotions what happens is the parent gets activated and reactive because those statements and experiences trigger us to feel discomfort so our natural reaction is to make those feelings go away So we either give in to the limit to take everybody out of their misery. And we come up with all sorts of amazing rationalizations. Like, oh, I'm just doing it now because I did tell him three weeks ago that if he did this (laughs) or that, he could have a lollipop, right? Like we get all for Clems about like, what is going on here? And we just want to like, have a reason why it's okay to do this. Or with the example of the kid hedging, going to school, it's, Oh, you're gonna love school. They have millions more magnetiles than we could ever have at home because they're so expensive. And we do a lot of cheerleading or minimizing, or you know how to do this, and you have lots of friends at school. We do a lot to try and make those uncomfortable feelings go away. The problem is that that minimizing or ignoring or cheerleading kids, trying to cheerlead kids out of feelings actually tends only to make the feelings fester and get bigger because feelings just are like, they're not right or wrong. They're just something we experience. It's what we do with those feelings. That is where the rubber meets the road. So the more you validate and are able to lean into the child's feelings the less likely they are to act out, right? So let's take the example of the tantrum, like the child's falling out. Oh my God, I can't, I need the extra 10 minutes. I didn't finish the game, you know, and you are saying, I know, I totally get it. I understand your frustration. It's totally fair. Like it's hard to stop in the middle of a game, but our family rule is time was up and that's really tough. And I get why you're frustrated, no problem. And you let them have their frustration because that's going to happen a million times in their life. So when you reframe it from, I'm doing something mean or harmful to like, this is a gift to my child. That's one really important sort of scenario. I see the other one that's more about like feelings, right? Like kids are scared about, you know, a myriad of things in this case, school saying to that child, I totally get it. Like, Starting something new feels scary. Of course, you would feel that way. I totally get that. But school is a have to. Like, I have my job, you have your job, and we're going to figure this out together. And that's when you do the problem solving. But what happens is when parents miss that step, and I just had a consult earlier today where the parents literally did that. This is a four year old who's actually never been in a group setting grandparents have been taking care of him because of covid and he's like no i hate school and i hate magnetiles so they literally said that to him and because because they're feeding the things that they think will (laughs) lure him exactly so they're like you the playground is huge and you're gonna have so many friends and he's like i hate playgrounds well it's like insanity of course he loves playgrounds he loves magnetiles but he's reacting to the the sort of glossing over and non-acceptance of his feelings once they start to say totally get it bud of course that's going you know it may take some time it's gonna take some time for you to get to know the teachers to get to know the kids totally get it but you will see over time that there are great things there you can I think say those things but you can't go out of the box trying to cheerlead or convince your child out of their feelings. They're much more open to hearing what you have to share once you validated their feelings. The same thing is true for us as adults. Like when in the history of like telling someone to like not be angry or to calm down
1: ever made them less angry or have them calm down, right? But if you say you if you I want think want scream louder that you're angry so that you're valid, like you're convincing the other person of your feeling. And, you know, we just are a little more self-regulated, hopefully. Right. Okay. But you you up the ante. You're yeah. like, you want to hear how angry. Yeah. But if someone says, you know,
0: Aliza, I get I totally get why you're angry. I totally understand. Let me tell you how I see it. Now you're going to be much more open to hearing their perspective because they have Acknowledged yours and kids are no different. So it's really critical not to fear the feelings and to know that behavior is a result of a feeling. It's the acting out of a feeling. So the more you can help surface those non judgmentally, the better able your child's going to be able to be to cope with that and
1: therefore act out less. And so importantly, non judgmentally, so that. All of those feelings are allowed and kids don't have to do those certain behaviors to allow for the feelings inside of them and hide them or whatever they're trying to do from parents who say you shouldn't feel that way. So all of those feelings are welcome, which goes to the next mindset because it's not just that experiencing those difficult feelings isn't harming your kid. Um, but also that, so the next mindset is just that those boundaries that you're setting don't need to be, you mentioned it earlier, embraced by your children just to be appropriate boundaries. So like we also have to fight our own ideas that everybody has to agree on these limits and, so let's talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. because of course kids aren't going to be like, oh yes, I I did think that that was the, the perfect limit for how long I should be watching this show right. or whatever it is. And so getting comfortable and hearing the words, it will not harm your child for them to be upset about a limit that you're setting mm-hmm. when it's appropriate. So let's maybe touch on that a little bit. Yeah, so
0: that mindset evolved out of, watching. So I do a lot of home visits or I did a lot of home visits and now I just get a lot of video from families to sort of, so I can really see in vivo how these complex situations evolve, which is incredibly helpful. And one of the things I noticed was that parents were doing like a lot of trying to convince their kids to agree so that they would avoid the tantrum, right? So, you know, they're saying to them, We're only going to do three books, right? Because otherwise, you're going to be really tired in the morning and you're not going to have the energy. And the kids, like, oh no, I'll have plenty of energy. Let's keep going, right? Like, again, what child is going to say, you know, it's really time to stop, mom and dad. Let's say goodnight. Because what happens is now you say, book time is done. And you get the inevitable, oh, mommy, it's not enough. Just one more book. Or this is what I hear a lot mommy, I haven't had enough time with you. I really need more time. I miss you. Well, you know, these are human beings and many parents struggling with feeling like they don't have the time they need with the kids. But the problem is if you don't have a clear limit during, again, these bedtime routines, it devolves, and you end up frustrated and hating on your kid because he's driving the car and you feel like he's not letting you set the limit. And now it's a lot of anger and frustration and then the threats come, right? That is way more detrimental than saying to your child, I know it's never going to be enough. I totally get it, but it's time to go to bed. That That is not harmful to your child. That when you get good at setting clear limits lovingly and not going down the rabbit hole of trying to get their buy-in, you become more loving. So as parents started to make these shifts and we would videotape, you could see that so clearly the limit was loving and it led to more love. So it's really getting out of the mindset that not you know, answering the 50th question. And for example, recently I had a mom whose kid wanted to make her lunches, which is amazing. But here's what happened she started to do it at nighttime and taking the cucumber like at a snail's pace. And the next thing you know, it's 45 minutes. And she's like, I don't know what to do. It's okay to say making lunch is awesome. I'm so glad you're doing that. We have 15 minutes to yep. do it. You can choose what you want to do for that period of time. And then it's time for bed and I can be the finisher. So it reminds me of these moms I worked with who had a little girl. And what they said to me was, "You know, we want her to have agency and efficacy and we want her to explore and we don't wanna put limits on her. Totally get that in theory. But what they then said to me, now she thinks she's an equity partner because they were attorneys, right? So that's their vernacular. But like, you could see how very quickly things devolve. And that's what leads to the power struggles that make everybody insane. So once parents see that setting the limits that they control is actually harmful, and that the distress their child experiences, we think of as positive stress, that's not toxic stress, even though it may look toxic when your child likes One dad said like blood curdling screams, um, you know, when he said it was time to get out of the bath and she wasn't ready, it doesn't feel loving. That's the problem. I call it the positive parenting paradox that what is loving for your child often doesn't feel loving. So don't get caught in that trap that that distress is harmful to your child.
1: I want to expand a little bit more on that when we get to the seventh mindset, because What those moms expressed is something that a lot of us feel we want our children to have agency and a sense that they can challenge authority. And we want to give them that creative freedom. And that does not need to be inconsistent with setting appropriate limits. Um, But before we do that, the sixth mindset shift is just about reframing failure, that failure is not harmful for kids. And in fact, beneficial. So let's go through that. And then I would love to jump back to those moms. Okay. So this one is easy because there's so, I mean,
0: there's so much out there, right? Like in in every possible platform about how failure is learning and, you know, mistakes are normal. And there's a lot that parents are getting about that. The reason I included it is because in the moment, like you said earlier, even though parents like intellectually will say, yes, I agree with that. I want my child to have grit and resilience and to muscle through challenges. In the moment they've got you know their four-year-old who's struggling with a puzzle and starts to get frustrated, they get triggered because what they're actually feeling is that that experience for my child is eroding his confidence. Like if that frustration is making him feel like a failure and that's not good for his self-esteem. And so what they do, and this is all happens like, again, at a very cellular unconscious level, they run in those, oh, no, here's where the puzzle pieces go, bud. But what happens when you do that is you're inadvertently communicating to your child that you don't believe they have the ability to solve their own problem with some amount of scaffolding, right? Depending on the child's age, And that like mommy or daddy needs to come in and rescue and do it for you, which is very risky also because that sets you up and for moms or dads out there listening, know what I'm talking about. You then become the blame for everything that goes wrong in their life because you have positioned yourself as the rescuer. So instead... If you, when you see that and you can pause for a moment and say, okay, like I'm getting triggered. Every bone in my body wants to just like fix the problem. I'm not communicating to my child that I believe in him to be a successful problem solver. That's what erodes his confidence is when you swoop in and solve the whole problem. So instead it might look like, ah, puzzles. They are so frustrating. They're really, really hard. Totally get it. Would you like some ideas? That's another, by the way, like new tool I'm using with really good outcomes, which is not when you are ready to give your child ideas, take a moment to ask them, would you like, I have some ideas about
1: solving this problem. Would you like to hear them? And that is not just for puzzles. It's for advice or anything else. Everything. Like no one's playing with me on the playground.
0: Oh my God, Well, will do this, do that. Go ask, like we immediately get so triggered, especially if we're adults who had FOMO and didn't like to be left out. This is a whole, probably a whole nother topic. But <laughs> our knee jerk reactions, oh my God, I have to make that all better. I have to have her feel like she's got friends and people like her. So we're like, ask her to come over for a play date. Tell her you want to play dolls on the playground and bring all your dolls. Like we immediately rush to solve the problem because we're so uncomfortable with their discomfort. So you start to see that these are all interconnected. It's kind of hard to tease them out. But in that case, it's much more loving to a child to say, wow, I'm really glad you're sharing this with me. I'm really glad. Sounds like it's a tough situation. Tell me more about it.
1: And Um, then we show them that we also can sit through all of those uncomfortable feelings ourselves. Exactly. And I will tell you that I have come to understand
0: this over many, many years of my own parenting, which is that your only currency really, once your kids go off to even like elementary school and they're like, they have six hours of their day that you have zero knowledge and access to your greatest currency is that your kids are going to feel safe to tell you what's going on with them. And when you jump in to solve all their problems and you project your anxiety onto them, they are much less likely to feel safe doing that. If you can be their rock, non-judgmentally, sit with their feelings, hold their feelings and help them think it through and say things like, I have some ideas, would you like to hear them? That shows respect that you're not going to intrude. And most kids, once you ask for permission, are eager to hear what you have to say, but you're not solving the problem. You're giving
1: them things to think about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So back to the idea that giving these clear directions and setting limits is somehow becoming, you're becoming a dictator yourself. That's an important reframe because you can hold both things to be true. You can have a child who understands the times to question authority and how to be a rebel girl, rebel boy or rebel day. You cannot ignore limits in the service of having a kid who is more interesting and creative and insightful and whatever the words that those moms were using. Mm -hmm. I think many, many parents feel that way. And how can we make both of those things be true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, finding that
0: balance, I think, is a real art, but it is possible. And it starts with knowing that it's not mutually exclusive, you know, that kids need the limits and boundaries, but they also need lots of choices. But within the outer limits, right? Like what I was saying with that child who wanted to make her own lunch, that's awesome. But things go off the rails when there's not a clear boundary. And and really, as much for the parents as for the child, if you don't have an idea in your mind about what the expectation is, that's when kids exploit that gray space. And in a strategic way, like if there is no boundary then they're going to keep pushing that. And that's when a lot of the anger and the frustration ensues. And that literally flies in the face of what the parent's trying to do, right? They're trying to engender positivity and encouragement for their creativity. But if you don't have those outer limits and boundaries, and you really look at it objectively, that's all getting subverted because there isn't a clear limit. So one of the things I I landed on like uh, one of these big aha moments, as I was thinking about these mindsets was that really parenting to me boils down to finding that balance between supporting versus enabling, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you find that? And that, I feel like that's very relatable here. Like I want to support exploration, independence, creativity, But I don't want to enable, I don't want to behave in a way that doesn't give my child the tools and skills to cope in the real world, where those boundaries are going to, is if they're going to go to preschool and they are going to have to learn to give other people the paint. Like they can't have all the paint all the time. So that connects to this mind shift that you're raising, which is this idea that Parents, when I ask them about what makes it hard for them to say, you know, you can use these paints, you can use them on this paper. It's not anywhere. I feel like I'm being a fascistic. That's literally what parents say is it feels uncomfortable to them because somehow they feel like they're limiting their child's freedom. And what I say to them is that it sounds so ridiculous but it's so true. And we don't remind ourselves enough that kids have parents for a reason. Yeah. Like we, we do know better than them. That doesn't mean we don't respect them as individuals. We don't want to nurture all of these amazing skills and creativity they have, but otherwise it would be Lord of the Flies, right? Like the, the boundaries are what enable the exploration and the love to imbue your relationship. So it's giving your child a clear direction, right? Like it's time to get in the car. That's a have to. It's just a have to. It's going to happen because we're in charge of making sure nobody's late here. That that's also by the way, where I came up with the two great choices. A lot of parents say to me, Well, it's really not two great choices. It's like one great choice and then the other choice isn't so great. (laughs) Right. That's like I'm going to put you in the car seat. But the reason I say it, that way is very intentional. And it's because it puts the parents in a more loving, collaborative state of mind as opposed to a threatening state of mind. Because usually it's that fit. If you don't get in the car seat, I'm putting you in the car seat. And it's very threatening and the haunches are up. When you say, sweetie, guess what? This is so amazing. You have two great choices. You can climb into the stroller on your own to leave the park. That's one great option if you want to be in charge. If not, I'll be a helper and I'll get you in. What would you like? So it really is more for the parent to be able to set that boundary in a way that doesn't feel like a
1: dictator. Mm -hmm. Let's go into this eighth and final mindset shift. And then maybe we can use an example that is with a kid who's being super reactive and, and aggressive?
0: So this one is about a very pervasive phenomenon, which is when kids, they're saying things that are unkind or you know venomous sometimes or really inappropriate when they're triggered or when they do something physical like hit or bite or throw things or kick things. The parent's knee-jerk reaction is that the child intends to be harmful, and the, the reaction is usually like, why would you do that to your brother? Or nobody's going to play with you if you grab their toy. Or the child says something, you know, I hate you, Daddy. You're the meanest poopy-faced Daddy because Daddy has said it's time to come in from our wonderful playtime to get ready for dinner, Right. So what happens is when parents take that at face value, they get reactive and they get punitive. So it's like, that's it. If you talk to me that way, I'm never going to have that playtime with you when I get home from work, which of course, like in a sane moment, we all look and see that's not a healthy thing. That child needs that time with that dad. What he needs is a way to be able to set a clear limit that's not reactive and angry because when you take the bait, and you start to get reactive yourself, it goes into the win column for the child, because in that moment, they're trying to derail you from your plan, or to show you how mad they are at you. But they don't mean like in the way that an adult might, right? And even of course, we know many adults also, I mean, think about the things we've said to our partners that like, you know, we we shudder at. So once parents see like not to take it personally and that your child's not a sociopath, they're just, their downstairs brain has completely taken over. They're able to then, like this dad was able to say, Ben, I totally get it. It's so hard to stop because we're having such a great time. And I know you don't like it when I say it's time to go in for dinner. I totally get that. And I don't expect you to like that rule, but that's our job is to do our evening tasks. So you have two great choices. You can come in on your own or I can be a helper. Right. But you see what a different scenario that is when that dad understands that what he's really seeing and responding to is the underlying issue. And that's what I recommend to parents that, you know, that, you know, your, your child hits you because you've taken a toy away that they were throwing, let's say. Right. and. Instead of why are you hitting mommy? Why would you hurt mommy? Which by the way, is very shaming. And the child gets flooded with emotion for Oh my God, I'm this terrible person because I'm hurting mommy and nothing gets learned when a child is flooded with shame and emotion, they, they, they can't think clearly because their brain is flooded. Their upstairs brain is flooded. Right. But if you say, oh, no hitting, you know, hit, remember, we don't hit people because people have feelings. Let's let's help you find something else to hit. I know you're really angry. I know you don't like I took the toy away. Let's help you something else to throw or to hit. It's much more effective because it's really addressing the underlying issue, the trigger for the child. You're giving them new, more effective tools and you're not making it a relationship issue because then what happens is you get, I was on a home visit the other day and a parent set a limit and the child was very upset and he started throwing things. And then a few minutes later, he was clinging to his mom going, mommy, 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 do you love me? Mommy, are you okay? Like he got so so sidetracked and concerned about the break in their relationship that he couldn't really learn the lesson. And he was now saddled with these overwhelming feelings at four that he has no way of really making sense of. So once you see that this is just downstairs brain reactivity and what they need is your help to get back into control in a positive way you're going to be much more effective.
1: And all of these mindset shifts are helpful to go back to the idea of controlling ourselves because that we actually can do. And once we've let go of the other ways of thinking about this, especially when we're not in our thinking brains, really peace comes out of this. I don't mean peace like, everything's going to go perfectly and your kid's not going to tantrum and they're going to be great listeners, our own peace, (laughs) like our own inner peace. So in Mm -hmm. that, in that case, the father can not get so derailed from what his goals are because factually, yes, a child was aggressive. That is not acceptable, but here's what we're going to really focus on, which was the underlying behavior. So all of that makes for more peaceful parenting. And that doesn't necessarily translate immediately to having a child who's going to just be super chill and listen all the time. And that's important. Well, well also,
0: hearing you sort of, you know, summarize and recount it that way makes me realize that there's a really important point here, which is that this is not like permissive parenting. It's that I'm thinking very strategically, like if our ultimate goal is to have that child be more regulated and be able to handle that disappointment. Going about it by getting angry and reactive and amplifying that very intense power struggle only begets more of that behavior. When you go to the underlying reason for the upset and the trigger, the child learns ultimately to manage it because they're not burdened by the disruption in the relationship with the parent that ensues when parents get very reactive right, and and vitriolic
1: themselves. And you're still not accepting the hitting. It's just that the way you're going about it isn't with shaming and screaming and freaking out and dysregulating, you know, having a dysregulated reaction from our end of things. So it's not permissive, but sometimes people perceive not screaming and saying this is unacceptable as permissive, but nothing about this is permissive. It's very loving limits limit. What did did you say? I liked how you said it earlier. I
0: said, it's not love or limits. It's that limits are loving. Like if you have a young child or honestly, any child limits are like, it's not like this siloed thing that you do. It's part of the fabric of your everyday interactions with your child because children have so little self-regulation. So if you see it from that lens, that's, this is a gift I give to my child as part of our relationship. And I do it in a way that is calm and loving. The key is, is that I find that parents hear a lot about that ideal that you have to be, you know, there is a way to set limits, calm and loving, but in that triggered moment, they're not because some of these mindsets are coming into play and preventing that process. So once they have this perspective, they're able to access that and take a different course. But I will say that it's not, as you said, with a heavy dose of self-regulation ourselves, which is, I feel like so much of parenting, like if I had to put a percentage, like 80% of parenting is really managing our own emotions. And it's so hard. So for what it's worth, also in the book, I talk about, strategies I've come up with for parents to take that pause, but not just like saying pause or take your deep breath. I find is not, is, is not often enough. And instead I suggest parents take what I call this like mommy or daddy moment where when your child is triggering you, right. you've like asked him to clean up his toys and you, you know, we're not going into the gray zone. If you don't clean up your toys, you're not having any dessert after dinner and going down that black hole. You're saying, huh, you know what? I've asked the to clean up the toys. She's having a hard time following that direction. I literally do this and I talk about the child in the third person. I kind of look away from them. It's very effective. I mean, nothing's a panacea, but this works really well. And first of all, they're just looking at you like, what is mommy or daddy doing? And sometimes they just cooperate because they're just so freaked out that you're like doing something that's so unexpected. So you're like, oh, she's, not, she's having a hard time following that direction. So I'm going to take a mommy minute to think about how we can help solve this problem. Well, let's see. Elisa is a human being. Like I can't make her clean up the toys, right? I don't control her body. So I guess her two great choices would be she could choose to clean up her toys and then she has access to all of them tomorrow. And if she chooses not to, then I'll put them in a special container and she can have them on Sunday. No problem. And then you turn to your child and say, here are your two great choices. You see, but what it is, is option A is always the child doing the quote unquote right thing, cooperating with the plan. Right. Option B has to be something that you control. But coming up, parents would say to me, you know, these two great choices roll off your tongue. Well, that's because my kids are 28 and 30 and I'm miles (laughs) away from these families and I don't have to be there. And I've been doing this for 35 years. So that gives them time to think. And it also is an amazing role model for kids of how Mm -hmm. to model your own. You're like, oh, pause. (gasps) I need a moment to figure out how we're going to solve this problem. So it has many benefits um, because I don't want to minimize how difficult it is in the heat of those moments to think clearly, to be able to access like, what's going on with me? What lens am I looking through this? And I see what my child wants, but what does my child really need? That's really one of the foundational questions is like, yes, she wants 20 more books. She right. wants me to lie with her for, for another hour. She wants her blanket fixed 50 times. Is this helpful to her? And what are going to be the choices here that help us move forward in a positive way?